We're going to be reading from three different passages tonight, uh, one in Haggai and two in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, So let's begin in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 23, which is on page 791 of your church Bible. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Our next reading will be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, which is on page 807 of your church Bibles. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, 
and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And finally, our last reading will be in Matthew 8, um, verses 1 to 4, uh, on page 813. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Thank you for that reading. And please turn back to uh, Haggai chapter 2, it's page 791 in the Church Bibles. Haggai chapter 2, that's our main passage. I'll explain why we heard a bit of Jesus' family tree and uh, what happened when Jesus met a leper. Well, I'll explain that later, but for now we're going to focus in on Haggai chapter 2. And tonight, Haggai has a message for us of humility and hope. Humility and then hope. Let me lead us, into, lead us in prayer um, for God's help as we turn to his word. Our Father in heaven, we do pray you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Please help me to be clear and faithful and all of us to attend to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just before we get to the lessons in humility and hope that Haggai has for us, um, I did just want to ask you a question, which is this. Um, have you ever made a mess and then tried to clear up a mess and made the mess worse in doing so? Uh, sometimes that can be something trivial, uh, kind of child's toy that's slightly broken, and then dad says, I can fix it, takes it to pieces, and then a thousand pieces later it can't be reassembled. That's personal testimony. Uh, it might be something a bit more serious, so a relationship that's gone badly wrong, and each thing we do or say now seems to break it even more. It's a horrible thing, actually, when our efforts to fix the mess only make it worse. My most recent example, personally, was, was um, when I inadvertently combined someone's new cream carpet with the muddy wheels of a suitcase I was rolling. Uh, it was earlier this year, I was speaking at a weekend away, and it was really dark when I arrived, so I just rolled through some mud, not realizing it. Um, and they put me in, in this room, in this conference center, where they just fitted this plush new cream carpet. Um, so in I came, thinking, oh, this is nice, with these kind of two lines of brown mud following me into the room. Started unpacking my bag, not realizing kind of I, was, I was dropping mud everywhere as I went. Um, and I think at that point, well, once I closed the bag again, I suddenly saw that I was creating a, a big mess. I think at that point I could have done something sensible and kind of limited the damage. But I, I kind of panicked and tried all sorts of maneuvers to make it better that made it worse. So here are some of them. I, I tried scraping the mud off the wheels, um, but that just meant my hands were now covered in this kind of stick, sticky mud. Um, I went to wash my hands, but I hadn't unpacked the soap, so all that did was make the, the mud wet. I know how kind of wet mud on my hands, and I'd covered the sink in kind of brown, horrible stuff. Uh, I, I got some paper towel to dry my hands, but it was that kind of Christian conference center paper towel that doesn't absorb, it just spreads. It's just kind of... <laughs> so that spread it more. I then... Um, 
I then went looking for a Hoover, because I thought this is the only thing that would help, and I couldn't find a Hoover anywhere. But now every door I touched had kind of muddy handprints on down the corridor. And then I thought I had a good idea. I thought the one piece of equipment you do get in a room is a hairdryer. Maybe if I dry it, then I could kind of pick it up, put it in the bin, no one would notice. So I, uh, I turned on the hairdryer. Um, needless to say, that didn't actually help. It, it did two things. It baked some of the mud, and it kind of sprayed the rest of it across the room. It just got worse and worse. Now, why am I telling you that story? Um, partly because even at the time, I thought, at least I can tell this story one day. Um, but that's not, why I'm that's not why I'm telling it tonight. Tonight, I'm telling you that because... In Haggai, we have exactly that kind of idea. As God points out to the people that even their best efforts to clear up the mess that they've made between them and God, even their best efforts to clear up the mess are actually spreading more mess around. And it's not just cream carpets this time or, or, or child's toys or relationships with other people. It's relationship with God they are making a spiritual mess. They have done, and actually they're making it worse now. It's a lesson in humility. That may sound like a fairly miserable thing to be thinking about on a Sunday evening, but actually by the time we get to the end of the passage, we'll see huge hope. A, there is amazing hope if we, if we stay tuned in to Haggai tonight. I've been loving reflecting on this passage personally. It's full of grace and promise. But to understand how God's grace works... We do need the humility to get round the, our heads around the mess first, which is where Haggai begins in our passage. So you'll see on the back of the handout, there's an there's a outline. We're actually going to look at two talks from Haggai. Uh, on, on the 18th of December, 520 BC, and we do know the date. He gives the date in verse 10 and verse 20. On the 18th of December, Haggai gave two talks, maybe a morning and an evening sermon, we don't know. Um, but the first talk uh, is a lesson in humility. And then the second one, just at the end, verses 20 to 23, will be a lesson in hope. So the humility first. It's a three-pointer, his morning sermon. And the first point is this. Holiness is not contagious, but spiritual uncleanness is. Holiness is not contagious, but spiritual uncleanness is. Like the mud on my hands, that's what spreads. You can see, I think, that's the point from chapter 2, verse 11. Um, if you have a look down, chapter 2, verse 11. When, when Haggai gives a kind of basic, or God through Haggai, gives a basic test to the priests, a kind of simple quiz about what the Bible teaches. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? He's asking, does holiness spread by contact? The priest answered, no, not contagious. But then verse 13, Haggai said, if someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. See the point? It's fairly straightforward. Holiness is not contagious. Uncleanness is. It was clear in the law. If, if you touched a dead body, you were richly unclean, spiritually unclean. And then if you touch some, something else, they, that becomes unclean. Think of my hands at that conference center. You could see everything I touched. It was all now dirty. And it doesn't work the other way around. 
We kind of know that from the natural world, I think. Uh, if, if a child has contracted COVID, you don't think, oh, let's put them with the other healthy kids in Sunday club because their health will kind of rub off. You don't put a rotten piece of fruit straight in the middle of the fruit bowl, do you? Spoil the batch. But when it comes to spiritual holiness, moral cleanness, it's more serious than any of that, than mud on the cream carpet, than rottenness in the fruit bowl even than COVID in the classroom. And I'm not saying that lightly at all. Because whether we're holy or not, whether we're clean or not before a holy God, determines whether he can be in relationship with us, can be for us, can be anywhere near us in blessing. In himself, he's burning moral perfection. In, uh, the Bible says God is light. There's no darkness in him. White-hot purity, and so his, his people must be holy as he is holy. And the problem is, we are not. Listen to how Haggai carries on, verses 13 and 14. Uh, so Haggai, uh, 13 again, if someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then verse 14, Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. God says to his people in Haggai's day, you're not clean. Your hands are not clean. Which means all the work you're doing, all the building you're doing on this temple, that's not clean either. It's actually a bit of a blow if you've been here for Haggai and been kind of following along, this is a bit of a blow. The whole book has been encouraging God's people to to prioritize building God's temple. Uh, For the first readers, that meant literally investing time, money, resources, gifts, efforts, abilities in building this physical structure, this temple building, where God's glory would be shown on earth. We've been saying that today, Jesus has made it clear, the ultimate temple where God uh, is building for his glory, it's not that physical structure in Jerusalem, but a people, the church, global gathering of people to to praise his name. So Haggai's been encouraging us over the last few weeks to, 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 to prioritize the growth of that church to put in our, our, our time, our resources, our abilities, our effort, our, our money, our, everything to building church. And actually in 520 BC, there'd been some progress. When the book began, the work had totally stalled, but in the three months since, and it's kind of one kind of autumn term they've been doing this, um, the people have begun to obey the command to build. They've begun to see progress, albeit tiny scale. They've been told again and again, God is with you, keep going, keep building. And so what a blow it is for our final talk for Haggai to say, actually, you know what? What you're building is not clean. This temple, this work of your hands, it's not holy because you're not holy. What you're offering there, this new temple you're building, is not clean. Your efforts at kingdom building are actually spreading the mess. It's a bit of a blow. Last week, we had a different kind of blow. Last week, the challenge was that our building effort can look small, all this effort, and it really doesn't look impressive. This is kind of worse. The stuff you have achieved is contaminated, says Haggai. 
that kind of asbestos of human sin is all over the project. Lots of us, I guess, would love to pretend that on our own terms, we really are clean. We like to pretend that to others. We even like to pretend that to ourselves. Like there's nothing lurking in there in our hearts or lives that would be a problem for a holy God. But Jesus, when he met some religious people, saw right through that kind of good display. Mark 7, he says, What comes out of a person is what makes them unclean. For from within, out of the heart of of humanity, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they make a person unclean. And who of us could say that there's none of any of that in our hearts? No deceit, no pride, no envy, no slander. Jesus says it is not clean in there. We could be the most active minister or elder, the most caring small group leader, the most generous financial giver, the most regular member of the most rotors, the most active evangelist in the workplace or neighborhood, the most enthusiastic pastoral visitor, the most loving welcomer of newcomers. You can be building and building and building God's people, the church, his temple on earth. But God would say on our own merits, as he sees our hearts, not clean. But for God's intervention, we are not clean. This is something I've said before, I think, at Chalmers, but I think it's important enough to repeat. For me in my own Christian life, it was an, it was an absolute eye-opener. It, it was revolutionary in my thought to realize that it wasn't just um, my bad record that needed forgiveness, but even my good deeds, even my works of service needed to be cleaned up by Jesus needed to be forgiven, because they're contaminated. They are. You may not see it, but they are. The Lord sees it. Contaminated with pride or with people-pleasing or with self-service. There, there are mixed motives bubbling away. And even if I had some pure service, it's not going to eradicate all the other stuff. Holiness is not contagious, but uncleanness is. And so Haggai's giving us a massive lesson in humility. I do think it's a striking note in this book that is genuinely trying to motivate us to work hard, to say, well, actually, don't think that if I put in my bit of obedience, then God will automatically owe me one. It'd be so easy to think that. If we just prioritize the kingdom, if we just give some money and do some stuff, well, God will automatically deliver in response. There's a crass version of that in the prosperity gospel. If you pray hard enough, you'll definitely have perfect health. If you give sacrificially enough, that will trigger loads of wealth in your life. You'll get a promotion. Haggai actually is the book that's often used to justify that teaching. But while we might not be fooled by that, we might find ourselves thinking, if we work hard, automatically that will trigger growth in the church. Many of us have put a lot of sacrifice into Chalmers. A lot of time, money, 
costly decisions. A lot of us have served our hearts out over the years in many and exhausting ways. And it could be possible to think, well, God must owe us one now. We've put our money in the divine vending machine. When do the sweeties stop, start dropping out the bottom? And Haggai has this humbling message. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. So with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. God proves that to them um, with, with the time frame. So just follow the logic from verse 15 onwards. Um, first, he, he goes back to chapter 1, before the, the temple work got going again. Back to, uh, so verse 15 refers back to that time. Consider um, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? This was chapter 1 if you were here. Not well. Um, God, God withheld his blessing when they were, when they were um, ignoring his temple. And that's a recap. Uh, when the temple lay in ruins and the people were just focused on their own houses, God withheld his blessing. But the surprising thing is what's happened since the work restarted on the temple. It's not what we'd expect, I think. Verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, and listen to this. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. I think it's a surprise. The work has got going. The temple foundation has been laid. And yet, the blessing hasn't yet started to flow. Presumably, because their building work is contaminated. It's not automatic. Their efforts don't guarantee a blessing. At which point we might be going to think, well, what is the point of this then? You, you try your best and you still don't get there, but then there's an even bigger surprise in verse 19. The amazing end to this verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine tree, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. God decides graciously to bless them anyway. It's extraordinary. Despite their uncleanness, despite the contamination of everything their hands touch, the Lord who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and swift to bless, chooses to bless them and their work. Chooses to bless this weak, beleaguered nation with real prosperity from that day forwards. That's why he names the day. I pick the day. It's not the day the temple foundation was established or the day that the work began. No, the day of God's choosing, God's sheer grace. What does that mean for us? Well, as we've been saying, the application of Haggai's temple building project is not to physical infrastructure, even though we pray that physical refurbishment we're doing will enable the church to grow. Now, we are to work for the building of God's people. Haggai's sermon gives us a helpful dose of humility. Don't think on our own, just by our own efforts, our own kind of moral and spiritual purity, that we can automatically obey enough for God to automatically bless. We should never be proud in our work for the kingdom. And yet, we do work with the real knowledge that God is gracious 
and swift to bless. We can actually ask him and depend on him to bring growth and blessing. Not like them, that our crops will definitely grow and our businesses will definitely thrive and all our families will be well off and prosperous. We don't have those direct promises uh, in the way that Israel did under the covenant at Sinai. In this age, the church is scattered across the world, living cross-shaped lives. Abundant material blessing has been promised in the new creation. But God has promised in this age to grow his church. Not because we particularly deserve it, but because he is gracious. And so the day we see that happening, and we've already seen glimpses over recent years, as we see God prospering his people, growing us as a church family, well, Haggai says, have some humility to realize this is not credit for your cleanness. It's not reward particularly for the effort. It's testimony to God's grace. From this day forth, I will bless you. That's the humility. And we're already, I hope, beginning to get a glimpse of the hope. Just take a moment. I know it's warm in here. It may just be warm up here, but I assume it's warm down there as well. Um, Just have a moment to to shuffle um, and uh, take a deep breath for our last point. Um, we've We've seen the first talk from Haggai in the morning, a lesson in humility. Those first three points. Our final point comes from his second talk. Because that first sermon on the 18th of December kind of leaves a question hanging in the air. It's this amazing hope that God will have grace, will bless an unholy people. It does beg the question, the puzzle, how? How can a holy God just choose to bless an unholy people? How can a just God see the uncleanness of people and say, do you know what? I'm going to bless them anyway from this day forward. How can that be? In many ways, that question is one the Old Testament poses again and again and again. Lots of ways, the Bible story is is an impossible conundrum crying out for an answer. How a holy God can bless an unholy people. And of course, Jesus is that answer. Even here, the temple, the priesthood, they're always pointing forward that there needs to be some kind of mediator, some kind of in-between, go-between, between an unholy people and a holy God. Someone who's genuinely holy can approach God. Genuinely human can relate to us. Someone who can thoroughly clean us up. Someone who could not be found in the history of the Old Testament. See, even those priests, they were contributing their own mess Muddy hands on the door handles of the temple. But one day Jesus would appear and announce that he was the real temple. The ultimate priest. The true sacrifice for sin as he died on the cross. Paying the price for our uncleanness and clothing us with his perfect righteousness. He cleans us up. That is to say, it's Jesus' coming death on the cross. That's the reason why God can choose to be gracious to Haggai's audience then 
and to us today. Our hope for this church to thrive is not the quality of its members or leaders, it's the sufficiency of the cross to cover us. And if we wanted proof that Jesus really can do that, well, that's why we read that bit from Matthew when Jesus met a leper. That's why it's just such an amazing moment. A leper was uh, not, not just um, ill and contagiously ill with a skin disease. They, they were also as spiritually unclean as they come. You couldn't even touch a leper without becoming unclean yourself because uncleanness is what's contagious. And so what an amazing thing it is in Matthew when a leper comes to Jesus, kneels before him and says these words, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You can imagine the disciples and the crowd watching on saying, no, get away, get away from him. You're going to make Jesus unclean. We know uncleanness is contagious. And then Jesus, he stretches out his hand. And you can imagine the crowd saying, no, Jesus, you'll have to isolate. And Jesus touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was clean, cleansed. And not just the physical illness, but the spiritual uncleanness. So Jesus, that's why he sends him to the priests. Show yourself to the priest. Offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to him. Be clean. Come and rejoin God's people. Come and approach the holy God in worship. See, Jesus can do what no one else can. He can reverse the contamination process. He can make us clean enough for a perfect God. He can make our church building all the effort we put into growing God's people clean enough. And actually, I think there's a hint of Jesus even in Haggai. So our very last thing to think about is these last uh, verses, 20 to 23, um, the very last uh, talk that Haggai gave in this book. Um, and our final point, which is to speak of the great king to come. Remember we said that the, the talk previously had ended on that puzzle. God is going to choose to be gracious, but how does that work? How can a holy God bless an unholy people? Well, on the same day, another word comes from the Lord, a word that focuses on a ruler from the line of David. I think this is a massive clue to God's people of where to look for hope. We've had the humility. None of us is clean enough by our own merits. We've had hints of hope. God will show grace. But now hope gets a name. A very specific hope targeted in one person from one line. This is our final point. The Davidic ruler is the sign of great victory to come. The Davidic ruler is the sign of great victory to come. By Davidic ruler, that's not a phrase you hear around the streets of Edinburgh, is it? I just mean a king coming from the line of David's. That's the significance of this guy, Zerubbabel. He's a descendant of David. He's in the line of the royal family. Right now, he's just a governor, or called, called that because uh, he's, they're still under the Persian Empire. But actually, despite his relatively low status at the moment, 
It was a big deal that there was still a, a descendant from David's line around. God had promised back in 2 Samuel 7 that he would build his everlasting kingdom from that line, that family. At this point, the Davidic dynasty had hit its lowest ebb. And the nation had been defeated, the royal family taken into exile by Babylon. God had even said these chilling words to one of Zerubbabel's ancestors. This is from Jeremiah, listen to this. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of of those who of whom you're afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That was a chilling judgment back in Jeremiah's day. You were the signet ring on my hand, Davidic king. You were my authority on earth, the representative of my rule, the heart of my kingdom, but I'm taking you off and giving you to Babylon. A sobering moment. It was the, the kind of, oh no, is it, is it all over? Is the hope over? But then verse, um, uh, verse 21, listen to this reaffirmation of this promise that David's line is still the place to look. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And then down in verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I'll take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you to declare the Lord of hosts. Or in other words, the promise to David is not in the bin. This is still the family to look to. This is still the line where hope can be found. And so Matthew 1, it's no surprise when we find Zerubbabel is one of Jesus' ancestors. See, the book of Haggai ends, I think, beginning to give a clue to the answer. God will show grace and bless an unholy people. How? Well, look to the king. This king, this descendant of David, that's where hope lies. When God shakes the heavens and the earth, talking about his great final judgment, that is the only safe place to stand for unclean people taking refuge in that king. I think that has two implications, depending on who we are. If you're not a Christian here tonight, as the Bible so often does, this is a passage encouraging us to take refuge in King Jesus. We are not clean enough for God. We're just not. But he can do something about it. As he said to that leper, I want to be clean. What about for us who are followers of Jesus? Well, this reminder that actually in the end, Jesus' kingdom, this kingdom of the, the king from David's line, that is the safe place to stand, the only place to stand when God really shakes the nations. Well, that is an encouragement to keep building, isn't it? I was thinking about today with sending out a number of mission partners um, today and over, over the coming week. And there's lots of cost to that. It's cost to them, to their families. 
It's cost to us. Finance, prayer, support, encouragement. Be much easier not to. And there's a lot going on at the moment. There's tense international politics, there's terrifying price rises, there's a climate crisis. Have we really got the capacity to prioritize the message of King Jesus going out to other places? Well, yes, says Haggai, because in the end, only Jesus' kingdom will stand. It's the only safe place to be. And so it is worth telling him It's worth investing in building the kingdom. Keep going. All of which brings us to the end of Haggai. I don't know how you found the book. Um, I guess some of us have missed bits. Um, I'm about to give you a summary, so if you have, this is your chance to to catch up. Um, All the talks are online, obviously, so you can catch up properly. Um, For me... Happily, I I came back from holiday just as Haggai was beginning. For me, this book has been exactly what I needed to hear coming back from holiday ahead of a new church year. God has been encouraging us once again to prioritize the building of his kingdom. In Haggai's day, there was a lot going on. People didn't feel like they had enough resources, spare capacity, time and energy to both rebuild their lives sort out their houses and things, and to be building God's temple. But Haggai's given us four amazing sermons, four big reasons to think differently. So let me just very briefly give you my scribbled summaries of those four. So talk one, chapter one, prioritize building God's church. He told us it's a false economy to push our creator to the side He does look after us as we depend on him and serve him. That was chapter one. Chapter two, first 10 verses. It may look small, but God is with you. That's what we saw last week. The work can look pathetic at times, can seem like the church will never even get back to what it was in the glory days. But actually, God says the future is bright. He'll fill the church with glory in the end. That's number two. It may look small, but God is with you. And then number three and four we had tonight. Number three, your efforts are unclean, but God is gracious. That's the humility dose. Let's not kid ourselves that just obediently working hard for God's kingdom kind of twists God's arm into blessing. Now it's still all of grace. And then finally, the Davidic king will win in the end. So it's worth working hard to build his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for its timely arrival in our church family this summer, when no doubt some of us are feeling really weary, where some of us will have put down our tools, maybe with the pandemic or other things going on, and where it's a challenge to to once again pick up the work of serving you and your kingdom, of building your church. We know that can look like a hundred different things for each of us, but we do pray that you would, by this book, motivate us to serve you in humility, trusting in Jesus, and in real confidence, knowing that Jesus will return when you shake the heavens and the earth. Please grow us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.